This podcast brought to you by the Canadian Association of Radiology, Resident and Fellow Section. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning hey in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're, you're listening, listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey everyone, you're listening to Learning in the Dark. Hey the podcast aimed at making those dark on-call nights just a little brighter. My name's Rebecca. And my name's James, and we're your co-hosts. So as you know, this podcast targets those high-yield on-call pathologies that will prepare you for call, taking cases, and the boards. So here's the plan. We're going to start with James guiding us through an approach to a common case like he would in rounds, formatting through the classic four Ds of radiology. Detect. Describe, Differential, and Decision. The cases are available on our website, learninginthedark.com. Please follow along or just listen in as we embark on this wild radiology ride. All right, James, so what's our topic for today? Our topic today is ovarian torsion. Amazing, one of those need-to-knows. Take it away, what's your approach? Yeah, so when I'm confronted with the question of ovarian torsion, um, I think ultrasound is always the most appropriate modality for these. And so I start by doing a transabdominal examination, first finding both ovaries, um, seeing if there's any ovarian lesions, ovarian sizes. With the transabdominal exam, I think the most important thing is to build rapport with the patient and to get a sense of what's, what's going on in the pelvis. Uh, and then after that, um, I'll often move to do an internal exam for these. Um, I think that the uh, quality of the scan for the internal exam is just so much better than a transabdominal study uh, when it comes to characterizing the ovaries. So I'll do an internal or an endovaginal exam. Um, and I'll try and find both ovaries, which you can normally do. Uh, and I'll spend extra time focusing on the side of interest. And what I'm looking for in an ovary is an ovary that's big, that's enlarged an ovary that's often echogenic, or it's got some edema in it. I'm looking for evidence of an underlying mass. Uh, and then I finally look at the blood flow by putting some color, uh, color flow on the ovary to look to see if it's being uh, perfused normally. Uh, and so if in my head I can answer the three questions about size, underlying lesion, and vascularity, I'm normally pretty happy. And if all those threes are normal, you know, I think the suspicion for ovarian torsion is quite low. Um, and, and then I look for ancillary features like, you know, is there, is there ascites? Is there hemorrhage in the pelvis? That could be from uh, infarction of the ovary, for example. Um, and then I try and tie those pieces together and speak to our uh, gynecology colleagues about uh, what I saw. But I think my, my big three things for approaching ovarian torsion is ovarian size, underlying lesion, and vascularity. Learning objectives. Detect. One, what are the classic signs and symptoms of ovarian torsion? Two, 
What is the underlying anatomy and pathophysiology of ovarian torsion? All right, so ovarian torsion is actually occurs in 2-3% to 3% of patients with pelvic pain. Uh, the preferred terminology, though, is actually adnexal torsion because the fallopian tubes are often involved. Once again, you've got tubes twisting on tubes. The risk factors for ovarian torsion are, one, benign ovarian lesions, such as cysts or cystic teratomas, um, fertility treatments such as ovulation induction, and with uh, the maternal ages increasing because of these, these are uh, more commonly found nowadays. Um, pregnancy can actually be a risk factor, and previous pelvic surgeries. Um, most of the time, these also occur in a population that of women of childbearing age. Yeah, so understanding the anatomy uh, is really important to understanding the pathophysiology of, of torsion. And so I think of the ovary basically being suspended in space by a number of ligaments. You've got the broad ligaments, the suspensory ligaments, the ovarian ligaments, uh, and through these run the tubes and the vascular supply. And so the ovarian blood supply is... Or it's, it comes from two sources, basically. It's got supply it's got from the backup. ovarian. It's got backup. It's got backup. Yahoo. Yeah. Redundancy is really important. Um, and so it's got backup from the uterine artery, and it's also supplied by the ovarian artery. Uh, and so sometimes this explains why arterial compromise that we see on ultrasound is a late finding, because um, while you might tort or twist one of the arteries, the other one might still be providing perfusion, but it's still torted. And then similarly, the venous outflow is through the ovarian and uterine veins, um, keeping in mind the uh, favorite anatomy quiz question that the right ovarian vein drains directly into the IVC, whereas the left drains into the left renal vein. Uh, gotta love those classics. All right, so basically what happens then is the ovary and the fallopian tube will twist on this suspensory ligament, um, and then the right ovary is more commonly involved, uh, often secondary to the mobility of the ileum and the cecum as compared to the rectosigmoid colon, which is more kind of stuck down there. Um, so the perfusion is disrupted, leading to venous congestion and lymphatic congestion. And then once the pressure differential becomes too great, then you get compromised arterial flow. Um, the outcomes actually, if left untreated, include ovarian infarction and then sub, like subsequent subfertility. So that has a really big impact on patients long term. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's really important to, uh, to catch these patients early. And one of the first places we can do that uh, is in medical imaging. These patients typically present quite unwell. Uh, they're in abdominal pain. They have abdominal pain. It's sudden. It's severe. It's an acute abdomen, essentially. Um, the pain itself can sometimes be intermittent, or maybe it's sometimes it's improved by the time you see them. Um, there's some theories that there can be intermittent torsion and detorsion along the vascular pedicle, or sometimes maybe if it's been a few hours, their pain is improving simply because the ovary, uh, their ovary has started to infarct. These patients often have nausea and vomiting, and they could have a fever or a palpable abdominal mass depending on uh, their presentation. Yeah, and I think it's also important to note that oftentimes when they've gotten to the ultrasound department, they've probably already been treated for a lot of these symptoms. So, you know, beware, morphine may on, be on board as well as on dance. So um, the clinical presentation when you see them may not be that representative of what's going on inside. Learning objectives. Describe. One, what are the appropriate imaging modalities? Two, what are the hallmark ultrasound findings of ovarian torsion? 
And three, how can CT lead us to the diagnosis of ovarian torsion? All right, this leads us to our describe section. So in terms of imaging workup, the first line, as James so astutely mentioned, is ultrasound, both transabdominal, transvaginal with Dopplers. Um, when you cl- clinically suspect ovarian torsion, CT may be ordered if there's other concern or concerns for other pathology and an MRI in certain contexts. All right, James. So what are we looking for? Yeah. So the ultrasound findings we sort of already touched on, but just to hammer them home, the big three that I look at are ovarian enlargement, uh, underlying lesion and vascularity. So just to flush the ovarian enlargement out a bit more, um, there's a few different rules for this. I mean, some people would say that the normal or the upper limit of normal for an ovarian volume uh, without a lesion is maybe 20 milliliters. And so you can take the dimension of the ovary, the three dimensions of the ovaries, uh, say four centimeters by three centimeters by two centimeters, which is about the size of a typical ovary, and multiply that by 0.52, our sort of ellipsoid volume. And you'll get an average of maybe 10 ml for a typical ovary. So you can multiply the three dimensions, multiply by 0.52 and get an ovarian volume. And that should be less than 20. And if it's greater then you have to ask yourself, do I think this is in keeping with torsion? Um, There's, I think one abdominal radiologist in our department who's got, she's got her four centimeter rule, which is you're allowed one dimension of the ovary greater than four centimeters, but you're not allowed more than two dimensions of the ovary greater than four centimeters. So four by three by two for an ovary is fine, but four by four by three would be an ovary that's enlarged. I think it's kind of a more straightforward way of thinking about it. The second thing that I look out for is the presence of an underlying lesion. And in the ovary, this can really be anything from a simple unilocular cyst to a hemorrhagic cyst to a teratodermoid. Um, the presence of an underlying cyst sort of, uh, or lesion uh, increases my suspicion uh, if the ovary itself is enlarged. So always look at priors. Always look at priors, really important. And what's really important is to look at the priors. And if there was a large lesion on the left previously, and now you see a large lesion on the right, you have to ask yourself, did it actually flip around um, either over the back or over the front, less likely? Um, And is this, yeah, an ovary that's now totally displaced? So that's something else to look for. Um, The last thing I look at is the color flow. Um, Like we said, arterial flow, abnormalities are often found late, but if I don't see any, the, the cases of torsion that I've been very convinced are torsion have no flow in them at all. Um, but there's literature discussing that, um, you know, blood supply, uh, could be either normal or there could just be venous flow abnormalities. And so I think it's really important to look at things, uh, in the, uh, the whole picture. Um, there's been a number of other findings that have been described for ovarian torsion, like, um, increased echogenicity, um, peripheral follicle displacement, rings around follicles. I think these are nice if you see them and they can help you support the diagnosis. But if I just saw one of them in isolation, I probably wouldn't raise the possibility of torsion unless I was directly asked. Uh, and then common is having some fluid. So normal, like it's normal to have a bit of fluid, but if you see complex fluid surrounding an enlarged ovary, that definitely, again, raises my suspicion of torsion that maybe it started to bleed uh, because of the venous uh, or because of the infarction. Is there amount, like a certain amount of free fluid that kind of raises your suspicion a bit more or what kind of uh, is I, your threshold? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, um, as you know, with, with looking at fluid, we rarely actually measure amounts. And so, you know, I sort of get the sense of what's typical. But if I see a bit, of, if I see a complexity of fluid or if I see more than I would expect, then I think that would raise my 
suspicion that something was going on in that ovary. Okay, cool. That makes sense. And I guess the big benefit of ultrasound too is that it's real time. So you get to talk to the patient and, you know, press somewhere on their abdomen and be like, is this hurting or is this hurting? Yeah, and that's really helpful, to, you know, and I, I use sort of pain mapping when I'm doing these ultrasounds as well. And I'll ask patients, like, is this side more tender than the other side? Is this where the abnormal, especially if I see something that's abnormal uh, and you're applying gentle pressure to it and you can, either the patient's telling you or you get the sense that they're um, experiencing pain, um, that can also be really helpful as to determining that, yeah, that, that pain is coming from the ovary and not, say, um, the cecum or, or something else nearby. Cool. All right, what about CT findings? How helpful is CT in actually diagnosing uh, ovarian torsion? Yeah, it, it's it's a tough one because overnight, um, most institutions, CT is more available than torsion. So uh, I think just based on that, you're going to pick up torsion cases overnight on CT. So in this case, you're looking for basically similar findings on ultrasound. You're looking for that ovarian enlargement. You're looking for the displaced ovary. You're looking for the the lead mass or cyst that we talked about. Um, the CT is better at depicting the um, vascular supply. So if you want to delineate where they say the ovarian veins are, CT is very good at that. I remember using CT once when I had a pelvic mass that was, when there were bilateral pelvic masses that were so big that I couldn't image them on one ultrasound screen. Wow. And I didn't know which was left, which was right. They were crossing midline. And so we did just a brief non-contrast CT of the pelvis and I could follow the ovarian veins into each one. And one of them was flipped over to the midline and that in context with the fact that she was in a lot of pain really helped to clinch the diagnosis of torsion with that one. That's awesome. Well, although it's a bit sort of controversial as to whether that helps, but they were, they were dermoids, they were bilateral dermoids. And, um, and so you see the fat density on ultrasound, sorry, on, on CT and it's really helpful because they can look really, uh, complex and uh, and almost incomprehensible on ultrasound. Wow, that must that sounds like a really cool case. Yeah, I think it was in my PGY two years, so of course I had the uncertainty of overnight as well. But there was uh, there was a good ending to that one. Cool. Learning objectives. Differential. One, what other things should we be considering? All right, so I guess that leads into other things that we should consider as well in our differential. The way I kind of like to break it up is into gynecological and non-gynecological causes of the, like, just basically pelvic and lower abdominal pain. Um, so the first one that we think of, though, uh, for ultrasound findings would be a ruptured hemorrhagic ovarian cyst or like a hemorrhagic corpus luteal cyst. Um, things to look for would be those internal like low-level echoes with a dependent portion sometimes within the cystic structure. Um, sometimes the internal echoes can actually organize into this fibrinous web that are thin and avascular and they don't really extend across the entire cavity. Um, you can sometimes get retracted clot uh, which is like heterogeneous and ava like an avascular mask, and it often has like this outward concavity. Um, but you should be able to apply pressure, and it may actually change shape. Uh, free fluid once again in the peritoneal cavity, and then um, you can sometimes get this thin rim of the non-edematous ovarian tissue. So basically, normal ovarian tissue. Yeah, I think no normal ovarian tissue is the key to making the diagnosis of um, 
ruptured or, or hemorrhagic cysts rather because a tubo ovarian abscess can also look complicated and angry and but with that one it's often a lot less distinct but the two i always put on the same differential uh, if i'm presented with undifferentiated pelvic pain with a vague history of maybe fever pain you know the way things are vindicate so you got those cysts or infection uh so other things too uh ectopic pregnancy so please refer to our other podcast uh for a bit like a bit of a deep dive into that um, ovarian hyperstimulation, which I actually saw last week, um, and it's caused by fertility treatments um, that include the actually like stimulation of the ovaries, and patients can often present with this abdominal or pelvic pain and uh, pelvic pain, pelvic pain, and bloating. In terms of the ultrasound, you find these enlarged follicles around the periphery of the ovary, but once again, it's that normal central ovarian tissue that's going to kind of clench your diagnosis. What about what other things should we consider, James? Well, anytime I think of or when I hear you talk about hemorrhagic cysts, I think of endometriomas. So uh, these are um, these are classically, you know, those low level uh, internal echoes. They're often long standing. So if somebody's had pelvic pain once, it's probably been doc- maybe documented that they've had an endometrioma. Um, uh, these patients um, often have an underlying diagnosis of endometriosis, which um, which is a, a very complex uh, diagnosis and patients will uh, experience exacerbations of pain and it gets uh, challenging to manage, especially in the emergency department uh, overnight. Uh, so endometriosis or endometriomas are on my differential for, for pelvic pain as well. Okay. So other things would be like malignant masses or even uh, leiomyoma degeneration. Yeah. Fibroid degeneration being being common in pregnant patients, which also helps to sort of confuse things because ovarian torsion is also common in pregnant patients. And then there's also uh, a number of other reasons why pelvic um, pain can present in pregnant uh, patients. But uh, yeah, fibroid degeneration or leiomyoma degeneration is on the differential as well. And what about the non-gyne path in the area? Pretty much anything. (laughs) Yeah, there's other stuff besides the gynecological things in the pelvis. Uh, So you got to make sure you think about the renal causes like ureteric calculi or cystitis and then the bowel pathology as well. So things like underlying inflammatory bowel disease, diverticulitis, appendicitis, basically the structures around know your anatomy and uh, figure out what can go wrong with the things surrounding the, um, the gynecological structures. Yeah, and we can be really helpful overnight by just trying to look for these things. So anytime that I scan a case overnight of undifferentiated pelvic pain, query torsion, and maybe the ovary isn't the explanation for it, that's the first thing that I scan. I'll go back and I'll have a look at the appendix and I'll try and find it. We did a study at our center and showed that residents find the appendix about 30 to 40% of the time. So if you can help with either ruling in or out the diagnosis of appendicitis, I think that's helpful to our clinical colleagues, especially if the ovaries look stone cold normal. Uh, as well as scanning up and having a look at that kidney for hydronephrosis as well. Uh, I think that those are two things that we can do that uh, if you've done even a bit of scanning doesn't take too long, but can really add value. Yeah. And like James said, with the pain mapping, let patients be your guide. If they have right lower quadrant pain, that's uh, like query appendicitis, they'll be able to show you exactly where their pain's coming from. Yeah. I make sure to to remember that I always make sure to save an image um, labeled ROI saying that this is, you know, this is where the, the pain is. Uh, greatest and even if it doesn't show anything then at least in my mind I've, I know I've looked Learning objectives Diagnosis 
How do radiologists influence the decision tree for our clinical colleagues? Well, this brings us on to our decision. So what happens after they've left the ultrasound department? Uh, If we do see ovarian torsion, appropriate gynecology referral and on a very prompt basis is extremely important. Uh, Pain management is probably, they're going to come hopefully to the ultrasound department with some pain meds on board, but that's also a key factor. But prompt surgical exploration and treatment is key for these patients to prevent, or uh, sorry, preserve fertility. Yeah, and when I speak to my my colleagues and friends in obstetrics and gynecology, um, when they detort torted ovaries, they try to preserve the ovary. You know, in in testicular torsion, I think the the management is conventionally, if it's infarcted, um, to resect the testicle. Uh, whereas in ovarian torsion even if a minor amount of the tissue is still viable, um, they'll still preserve it because the blood supply is um, so robust and, uh, and the risk is very low of leaving it, uh, leaving it there. Yeah, that's great and it's important to know that just because something looks bad doesn't mean that it can't make it bounce back the body's pretty incredible at uh, healing itself all right team well that wraps up the case for this week um hopefully we shed some light on ovarian torsion while you were learning in the dark please check out our website at learninginthedark.com for cases show notes and a link to our survey to provide us with feedback for future episodes Until next time, stay happy and healthy.